0: Good morning! I want to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. I want to talk this morning about astronomy and the birth of Christ. I'm sure that uh, you all are aware that this Friday is Christmas, right? And I'm also quite sure that you're aware, or at least you know that I believe, that Christmas is not when Christ was born. I know, that's hard to believe, you know? not. <laughs> And listen, I'm not going to get into a Christmas bashing lesson this morning. I've done that in the past enough. Just look up the old ones, okay? (laughs) That's right. But for our study this morning, I'd like to show you when it was that Christ was actually born. And I also want to show you what significance there is to December 25th. So hopefully we'll learn those two things. When was Christ really born? And what is significant? There's something biblically significant about December 25th. (coughs) Now, to get some background here, let's go to Genesis. Let's start at the beginning. We're going to work our way through Revelation, so hang on, all right? (laughs) Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. The word expanse here is the Hebrew word rakia. Rakia comes from the Hebrew raha, and it means to beat, to stamp out, to spread out. It was used of a beaten out metal plate. All right, now keep that in mind when you're thinking of an expanse. He built this... Solid expanse, so to speak. This is um, biblical cosmology. In the ancient world, the sky was thought to be solid, a dome-like structure that encircled and enclosed a round flat earth. Now, this was not just a biblical cosmology. All the ancient cultures held to this same cosmology, which is really interesting to me. They all held this cosmology. It wasn't just Israel. Where'd they get that idea from? Nah, I'm not really sure. Maybe the watchers taught them. I don't know, but somehow this was their cosmology, all right? Let's go on to Genesis 1.14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light in the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. That's not very scientific, is it? I mean, you know, scientists tell us the moon's not a light, it just reflects light, but the Bible says it is a light. I'm going to go with the Bible. I know that's weird, but you know, the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. All right. Now, here we see that the sun, moon, and stars are actually located in the Rakia. He placed these things in the expanse, as if they were embedded in this, you know, thing. That's the idea you get here. And these lights are to be, he says, for signs and seasons. Now, the word sign here is from the Hebrew word ot, which means the sign or the seal. You know, if you examine these Hebrew letters of the word, we get aleph, which means leader, Vav, which means nail, and Tav, which means cross. So the sun, moon, and stars were first and foremost a sign of the leader nailed to the cross. I think that's fascinating, not just a coincidence, but that's the sign, the leader nailed to the cross. Now we have to ask, how do the heavenly lights point to Messiah? Well, I think there's two ways that the heavenly lights point towards the Messiah. The word season is the Hebrew word moed. And moed means appointed times. It refers to the feasts of Yahweh. The feasts point to Messiah and the feasts are dependent upon the sun and the moon. So the moon and the stars are placed where they are for the scriptural determination of the feasts of Yahweh, which point to Messiah, the leader nailed to the cross. But secondly... And I want you to really think about this one. I think there is more to this than just the feasts. I believe that the stars are a sign that point to Messiah. To be more specific, I believe that the constellations of the zodiac are signs that tell the gospel. They talk of Messiah and the death on the cross. All right. Now, before you get upset, please understand, what I'm talking about is not astrology, but astronomy, okay? astronomy is the study of god's creation in the stars and astronomy declares the glory of god now this is the best thing i could find and you really can't see it that well from where you're at shows the different constellations this thing has the sun in the center forget about that this is a heliocentric model that someone made up the earth is at the center okay the sun goes through its course through these different things all right Now, in our culture today, astrology is about horoscopes and fortune-telling and what's your sign, you know, which is forbidden in Scripture. People think astronomical signs are about them, and that's totally backwards, all right? These things declare the glory of God. They tell of God. They don't tell about it. You don't get up and say, oh, you know, today is this day, and this is going to happen to me today. Really? One twelfth of the population, probably. It's all going to happen to all of them. They're all under that same sign. It's just really ridiculous, people, okay? And it's condemned in Scripture. But the original purpose was to tell us something about Yahweh and His plan for the world. The word zodiac itself is not a bad word. It comes from zoad, which means path or way. Now, some feel that it means the path of the sun because the sun goes along the ecliptic there. But also, I think it refers to the path or the way of salvation. Now, the signs talked about in Genesis 1.14 can be understood when we look at, for example, the wise men, the magi from the east who visited the young child Yeshua. They must have been very assured of the signs that they read in the heavens. They were convinced enough of the star that they observed in the east to travel great distances by camel. These wise men were priests from the country where Daniel and the children of Israel had been led captive. And their culture was schooled in the study of the stars of astronomy. And Daniel was made chief and master over all these wise men, over these astrologers in Babylon. And I think Daniel probably taught the priests about the promises of God's coming Messiah and what to look for in the stars. Now, the view that I want to explain to you today has been uh, laid out by E.W. Bullinger in his book, The Witness of the Stars. Also in Joseph A. Seiss's book, The Gospel in the Stars. And it's asserted that the signs of the Zodiac were originally designed by God to communicate the gospel. The gospel in the stars was known to those living before the flood. This was taught them. They understood this. And it was later became corrupted. And the alleged recovery of this gospel interpretation of the Zodiac gives great witness to the glory of God. Now, let me say that this view has critics. That surprise you? Okay. Every view, especially every view I hold, has critics. Okay. (laughs) But what I'm asking you to do today is just be a Berean. I want you to listen to the information. I want you to think about it. Then I want you to go home and look through this and study it out for yourself. As I was studying this view this week, I had an aha moment. Okay, it's one of those times when, you know, some weeks you're studying and you're just like, you know, okay, this is, you know, this is okay. But this week was like, ah, okay, that makes sense. Now, all of a sudden, a lot of scriptures I've been struggling with, this seemed, the pieces seem to fall together here. So I'm kind of excited about this and I'll share it with you. And like I said, you do what you will with it. But John P. Pratt writes this about the view of the gospel and the stars. He says, suffice it to say, when I examine the evidence as a PhD in modern astronomy, a student of ancient wisdom and as a practicing Christian, I have found more evidence favoring the proposal than against it. I now accept the overall concept in spite of several reservations. So here's an astronomer saying, yeah, this stuff really makes sense. He says, to me, there is enough good evidence to accept the overall theory, even though many of the details, and especially the translation of star names, need a lot of work. This, is, this whole view is built on the fact that all the stars have names. And in Hebrew, all names have a meaning, okay? Okay. You know, the book of Enoch tells us that the angels revealed the constellations. Uh, Enoch 8, and I've cut out some of this here because it's just, I just want you to get the idea here. Azazel, this is the name of an angel, taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working in them. All right, then he gets down at the bottom and he says, Kokobel the constellation. So this angel, Coco Bell, whatever his name is, he is teaching men about constellations and they're teaching them astrology. So they're learning. Now, in the ancient times, astrology and astronomy weren't different like they are today. They're pretty much talking about the same thing. All right? Now, if what Enoch says is true, that gives us a lot of insight. But what if what if what Enoch says is not true... We still have to understand that knowledge of the constellations had to be given by special revelation. Because those pictures in the sky are just not there for anybody to figure out. When I mean, you look up at the sky, and you go, yeah, look at it, I see Virgo, I see Leo. No, you don't see any of those things. You see a bunch of dots, until somebody can explain those to you. Well, let me share with you some texts from Scripture that lead me to believe that the Zodiac points to Christ. Romans 1, we see something interesting. And I've been dealing with this. I've been planning on redoing Romans 1 because now I've even got more reason to want to do that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God taught them somehow, these men who should have known, he says, for since the creation of the world, Talking about the beginning when God created. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. Now, how has God made His eternal power and divine nature clearly seen? Well, some here point to the beauty of creation. And some, you know, the look at the size of the universe or the complexity of life. And they, they demonstrate to us, you know, who God is and what He's done. It may be what it's talking about, but I don't think so. I have always struggle with what people call natural revelation. Because I don't think natural revelation teaches us anything. Alright? Well, later on in Romans, Paul seems to be following through on this when we get to Romans 10. And he's talking about the gospel, and you know, you've got to have a preacher, and he's got to be sent, and he goes through all these things. Then he comes with a very familiar verse, and he says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We all know that verse. He says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Surely they have never heard, have they? This construction is a double negative. The effect is to rule out entirely the possibility that they did not hear. And Paul replies, indeed they have. This is what I like about the New American Standard. You see the all caps? That's a quote. Where is he quoting from? Psalm 19. 19. Very good. All right. So he quotes Psalm 19 as proof that they had heard the gospel. Now, the standard view of Psalms 19 is that it tells us that the knowledge of God has been written for us in two volumes. General revelation, which is creation, and special revelation, the Bible. Well, in the first part of the psalm, most commentators see David saying that God reveals himself through his world, through His through nature. And these verses are a declaration of the greatness of God as seen in the world and nature. Uh, I, I've got some problems with that. But in Romans 10, Paul asks, did they not hear? Of course they did, he says. And then he quotes Psalm 19 as proof that they heard. He says, "...the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through the earth." And their utterance to the ends of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. The sun comes out and it goes right through the ecliptic, and all the constellations are there behind it. All right? It's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, Is David saying that we can see the hand of God in physical creation? No, does he say well, we stand by the Grand Canyon and we're awed by what we see. And we stand on the beach of the Atlantic Ocean and we just see the, the marvels of the ocean. We're awed by that great body of water. We go to the Alps and we're standing there and viewing the magnificent peaks. And because of that, we know there's a God. I don't think so. I don't think so. Because how many atheists do you know that study creation? Are they inspired? Are they turned? You know, oh, there must be a God. No, they say, what a beautiful Big Bang this is. You know? He says, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Remember that word, expanse? Rakia, we looked at in Genesis here. Genesis 1. We saw that the stars are in the expanse. I think that what David is referring to here when he says the expanse is declaring the work of his hands, I think he's referring to the Zodiac, the constellations. Again, the word Zodiac means path or way. The Zodiac is the stages of the sun's path through the heavens in 12 months. Now, notice verse 3. He says, there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Does that make sense? Well, look at verse two day to day pours forth speech. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Well, which is it? Are they pouring forth speech or is the speech not heard? Well, the KJV puts it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You see the difference there? That's a huge difference, right? The Geneva Bible puts it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Then as a note, it says the heavens are a schoolmaster to all nations, no matter how barbarous. In other words, there's no no place where the speech of the heavens is not being heard. Albert Barnes, commenting on this verse, writes this. The idea conveyed by our common version, KJV, is probably the correct one. This is the idea of the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate. According to this interpretation, the meaning is, there is no nation, there are no men, whatever may be their language, to whom the heavens do not speak, declaring the greatness of God's glory. See, I think Psalm 19 is referring to what some have called the gospel in the stars. God's glory is seen in the zodiac as it tells of the plan of redemption. So what is it that utters or pours forth the speech which voice goes out into the world? Well, whatever it is, it's showing the glory of God. Is the glory of God seen in the existence of stars? I mean, you look at the stars, you say, yep, must be a God. Look at his glory. No. All those stars are just a result of the Big Bang, says the scientist. So that, they don't see any glory in that. But look at 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, it's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is the work of Christ that shows the glory of God more than anything else. Far beyond creation, far beyond anything, it's the work of redemption that demonstrates the glory of God. So His glory is not just the stars, it's the work of redemption that is demonstrated through the zodiac. If the heavens declare the glory of God, then they're saying something about Christ. There's something about the heavens which declares Christ and his work of redemption. Now, there's another indication, which is also explained later by Paul about a message in the stars. We find in Genesis that Abram had no children, but God promised him many offspring. Genesis 13, 16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth then your descendants can also be numbered. So Yahweh promises Abraham multiple descendants. But in Genesis 15, there's another incident which Paul later explains and helps us greatly understand. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me, since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens, and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in Yahweh and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Yahweh takes Abraham outside and it's hard for us to imagine this because we are so light. Um, defiled here that you can't really see the heavens in a clear... You know, last night we got out of the car, it was dark, and my wife goes, look at the sky. It was just, it was beautiful. You could see all the stars, but that's kind of a rare thing. You know, it was just a clear night. But out here, you're out where they are. Okay, you're out in the desert, and there's no other light, and you see the sky, and it's brilliant, just lit up with stars. And he tells Abraham, count the stars. So what do you think? He says, Abraham, how many stars do you reckon there are up there? You know, you think he's trying to count them stars? Here's what's interesting. The word count here is from the Hebrew word safar, which can mean intensively to recount, that is, celebrate, show forth, speak, talk, tell. It comes from a root meaning, a book or a scroll. In the Septuagint, the word count is arithmio, which can mean to reckon up. The meaning of arithmio is much wider than count and can mean enumerate or reckon. So what Yahweh said to Abraham is not count the stars, but recount or tell the stars. See, there was a story in the stars. And Yahweh wanted Abraham to take note of that story. And there was something about this story in the stars that Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed in Yahweh. What did Abraham believe? Was it that he would have a bunch of descendants? Or was the message of redemption in the constellations that he had been taught? Paul tells us that Abram had the gospel preached to him, right? Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Was the gospel in the stars? Whatever Abraham believed, it caused him to be counted as righteousness. Yahweh evidently showed Abram that one of his descendants would redeem man from the curse and satisfy the justice of God. How do I know that? Well, Yeshua told me in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see Yeshua? He saw his day and he rejoiced in it. Abraham believed that God would provide a redeemer to deal with man's sin. When Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, so shall your descendants be, he was saying the Messiah would be Abraham's offspring? Is that what Abraham understood? Was that what Abraham was to tell in the stars? I think that Paul explains this in Galatians 3, 16. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one And to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul's clarifying that Yahweh told Abraham his seed was being referred to in the singular, not the plural, which would translate seeds. So it's possible that Abraham thought that the seed he's referring to here was Isaac. He's going to have a child from your own body and he gives him this promise and he's thinking, hey, maybe Isaac's the promised Messiah. Remember Abraham had received a very specific promise that he would have a son at a particular time, Genesis 17, 15 and 16, 18, 10. And then in Genesis 22, we read of Yahweh's command to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's the strangest thing when you read Genesis 22. What does Abraham do when Yahweh tells him to sacrifice his son on the altar? Okay? Backs up the stuff, gets the let's go. What? Wait a second. In Isaac is the promise going to come. Why would he just do that? He doesn't argue with Yahweh. He just simply obeys. Did Abraham know the Messiah had to be sacrificed and then resurrected? I think he did. Yeah. And I think he thought that Isaac was the one. So he was confident. Hey, I'll go do this. It's going to be resurrected. Look at Hebrews eleven seventeen and through 19. By faith, Abram, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. He believed that Yahweh would raise the Messiah, and perhaps he believed that Isaac was this promised seed. Genesis 22, 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkeys, and I and the lad will go over there, we'll worship, and we'll come back. He had some confidence, that no, I'm not going to kill Isaac, and that's the end of it. No, he believed there's going to be a resurrection, he's coming back with me, it's, you know, it's going to be alright. He seemed to understand they both were going to come back. He may have believed, like I said, that Isaac was the Messiah and he was going to be resurrected. He seems to have known the gospel. I think he saw it in the stars. Now, Paul refers directly to the psalm, which talks about the heavens pouring forth knowledge night after night. Here's this gospel in the stars that people were taught, that people understood. Abraham was told to recount or to tell the stars and he believed it and it was credited to him for righteousness. Paul says that the reference here is to Christ. So let's look at the stars. We read in the Bible that Yahweh named the stars. And that's very significant. Psalm 147.4. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Wow, that's incredible. You know how many stars are up there? The stars have names. And listen, the names of the stars have meaning. When we look at the ancient names, some interesting things emerge. However, because of the perversions of astrology today, many Christians, they're afraid to look at these names and see if God had a purpose in what He named them. But we have to remember, names in the past, especially in Hebrew, had meaning. You know, today we choose names for our children. Who knows why? You know, we want some other relative has a name or whatever. But the ancients used names. They had a significance, they had a meaning, they meant something. Yeshua meant Yahweh saves, or the salvation of Yahweh. Very significant. Now, finding the original meanings of these star names is not always easy, and it could take a lot of time and a lot of research. Go back into different languages, go back into different root words. But for enough of the stars, it's possible, and when it's done, something quite remarkable emerges from these names. How are we supposed to know the meanings of the constellations? I mean, how did anyone before know the meanings? Well, it's the same as reading. You had to be taught. You know, you can't look up in the sky and say, Oh, look, there's a lion. You're not going to see. I don't see a lion. Do you see a lion? Huh? Leo? Just like reading a book. It's something you has to be learned. You have to learn how to read the stars. The constellations themselves have been known from antiquity, all right? The identities have remained basically unchanged throughout the ages. Now, a few ancient constellations were larger and they've been broken down by modern astronomers into smaller constellations, but for many, the identities remain. For instance, the constellation of Taurus the bull. You see a bull there? It looks just like a bull, doesn't it? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You don't just look up at the stars and say, oh, look at the bull, you know, the constellation of Taurus and Orion appear in a cave dating back to 3000 to 2900 BC. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages. For instance, the constellation Virgo. There's Virgo, the virgin. That's what Virgo means, virgin. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Ula. Um, it's Parthenos in Greek. It's Kenya and Hindu, all of which mean virgin. So all these different languages have these names for the same constellation, but they all have the same meaning. How is that possible? This indicates a prior knowledge of the names of the stars and constellations. I think a prior knowledge that goes back before Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages. They all understood these stars. Maybe that has something to do with the Tower of Babel and they're building this thing to reach heaven. All right? But the languages are confused and now they have different languages but all seem to mean, have the same meaning. And this knowledge would have come down from Noah and Adam and they would have taught others this thing. The star and the constant names, they've been handed down from generation to generation. And it, like I said, it's amazing how no matter what culture, these different constellations have the same meaning. The book of Job is the earliest complete book of the Tanakh. It's written about 2900 BC. And the specific 12 constellations recognized today as the Zodiac are referred to as the Mazorah in Hebrew. That just means constellations. In Job, Pleiades and Orion are both mentioned by name. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion Can you set forth a constellation in the season and guide the bear with her satellites? The constellation there, the Hebrew Mazara, which means constellation, but only in the plural. Perhaps collectively referring to the Zodiac. In Job 26.13, he talks about these constellations. His breath, the heavens are cleared, and his hand has pierced through the fleeing serpent. The fleeing serpent mentioned here is Hydra. A constellation which takes about seven hours to pass overhead because of its length. It's the longest constellation in the sky. So there are some indications in the Bible that there's something going on up there in the sky that most of us are no longer aware of, but that the people generations ago, they knew about. Around 2700 to 2500 BC, the Sumerians recorded the existence of the table of the stars of heaven. Mesopotamia tablets about 1800 B.C. record both star names and observ- ob- observations of their movements. As early as 150 A.D., Ptolemy, uh, he has listed 48 constellations and 1,022 star names. His accurate description of the position of each constellation and star he mentioned make it easier to trace today. He did a great job in laying some of these things out. Now, some think... That the various pictures associated with the constellations were ancient imaginations just taken from the arrangement of these stars. In other words, they looked up to the stars and they looked at this and they see Cassiopeia there and they say, that looks just like a woman chained to a chair. (laughs) You see that in that, you know, constellation? It's ridiculous to think that, you know, people made these things up. They had to be taught these things. You have to understand what you're looking for or you're not going to see it. All right? As you look at this, do you see this? No, you don't. And Sagittarius looks more like a teapot than an archer. Okay? And yet the names of the constellations tend to be consistent with small variations throughout different cultures around the world. When you look into the ancient records, we see that the Persian and Arabian traditions and the Jewish tradition preserved by Josephus suggests that biblical astronomy was invented by Adam, Seth, and Enoch. For nearly 2,500 years, the revelation of God's redemptive plan for mankind was written in the naming of the stars and their grouping in the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Associated with each sign's constellation, there are three other constellations. You know what their lesser constellations are called? Anybody know? Anybody in an astronomy here? They're called deacons, all right? So the, each one of these constellations have three deacons for a total of 36. They are rising in the same area of the sky as the associated major constellations. Every 10 days, a different deacon is visible on the eastern horizon just before the sunrise. And 21 years before Christ, symbols on Egyptian coffins showed they were used to help keep track of time. All right, this is Virgo. She's the first sign in the zodiac. She's known by her Latin name Virgo. The Virgin. You say, how do you know? There's 12 of them. How do you know which one's first? Well, this is really weird, but the Sphinx in Egypt tells us which one is first. We find these constellations inside some of the pyramids, and the Sphinx actually points directly east, and the Sphinx is a combination of the lion and a woman, all right? So you got Virgo and Leo, and that's the combination, so they start with Virgo. And you go around, and you end when this is the story of the gospel. It starts with the virgin, it ends with the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know, I said it, this is just as pretty fancy stuff. This is more like the picture that is represented. Uh, she's a young maiden holding leafy branch or a small sheaf of grain. And the Mazarah, the Hebrew name of this constellation, is Bethula, all right, which also means virgin. She holds a branch in her hand. Now, would you look at this and see this? No, not unless somebody taught you, you wouldn't. All right, let me turn her up so you can see her upright. The brightest star in the constellation is Spica, Latin for ear of grain. The Hebrew name for the star is Sima. Anybody know what Sima means? Branch. Branch. In the Egyptian, it's called the seed. There are 20 Hebrew words that can mean Branch. Sima is consistently associated with the Messiah. The branch who will sprout out the root of David. Isaiah 4.2, Jeremiah 23.5, Zechariah 3.8. In Arabic, the whole constellation is called the branch. And the other bright stars of the constellation, uh, one is called Java Java, and it means gloriously beautiful. Another one means who shall have dominion. And Chaldean, the last star is the son who will come. See, when the ancient people looked at the constellation Virgo, they understood that there was going to be a promised branch of God who would be born of a virgin and come down to earth and have dominion. Again, this all has to be taught. Bethula, or Virgo, corresponds beautifully with Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 7.14, the first biblical prophecy of the coming Messiah, born of the seed of the woman, born of a virgin. Now, the three deacon constellations associated with Virgo are Coma, Centaurus, and Bootes. The Egyptian temple of Dindira, Coma is pictured as a woman holding a child. Bullinger quotes the Arabian astronomer saying of Coma, there arises in the first deacon as the Persians, Chaldeans, and Egyptians, and the two Hermes and uh, someone else teach... "...a young woman whose Persian name name denotes a pure virgin sitting on a throne nourishing an infant boy, the boy, I say, having a Hebrew name by some nations called Jesus." Okay? So you get the picture of what's going on here. You know, this, like I said, when you get into looking at all these stars and see what's going on, another deacon constellation of Virgo is Centaurus. The centaur, who's known from pagan mythology, he's half man and half horse." A centaur being someone with two natures. All right? The name of the constellation in Hebrew is Beza, which means the despised. He's despised and rejected of men. It's also uh, translated sin offering, another name for the constellation in Hebrew. We see in the constellation Virgo and her deacons the framework for the story that's going to follow. This is just the first constellation, all right? The story that follows. They all portray the story. We see the virgin suckling the greatly desired son, who is called the seed of the woman, and the branch, and then we see the two natured teacher, the prophet who has pierced and sacrificed, and finally the coming one who will hurry with a sickle in his hand ready for harvest. And it ends with Leo. I'm not going to go through all the consolations. We don't have time for that, but you know, you you get in and look, looking at their deacons and looking at the names, and it's pretty interesting. As I said, the, the Egyptians recorded the Zodiac in a circle on the ceiling of the temple of Inut. All right, this was their God. And you wouldn't ne- necessarily know where to begin and where to end except for the figure of the Sphinx connects the two, Virgo and Leo. The word Sphinx means bind closely together. All right, that's what the word means. So the Sphinx has the head of a woman and the body of the lion. The story of Yeshua's birth on earth begins with the virgin and it ends with the king of kings, the lion and of God, alright, so that's, as you go around the constellation, each constellation has a story by the different star names, you know, but from the brightest star down, declaring this story, alright, now that, all that is an introduction of what I want to say this morning, okay, so with that, with the idea, I just want you to get the idea that there's there's something up there in the stars, they are declaring the glory of God, so now I want to go to Revelation chapter 12, alright, in Revelation 12, it says, a great sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun. Alright, this is a sign. And it's in the heavens. Alright? We have a woman who's clothed with the sun. The woman is Virgo that we just talked about. Alright? She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she is with child. So this virgin's having a child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. All right. Notice that John says it's a great sign. It's important to recognize the relationship of all this astronomical symbolism to the text. The word John uses for sign here is a term used in ancient world to describe the constellations of the Zodiac. There's a great sign. And it's the sign is this woman who's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and look at on her head, there's 12 stars. Well, it just so happens that the constellation Virgo has 12 stars Over her head. All the stars are visible. You could be seen by observers on a clear night. It seems likely that the 12 stars also represent the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And from ancient times regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember Joseph's famous dream with his father? His father, the sun, moon, and the stars. Here's the 12 stars. They're the constellations. All right, this goes back, way back, you know, I said to Genesis in the beginning. All right, you can't see this too good, but there's Virgo. That really bright spot is the sun, and down below we got the moon. In his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest Martin says, In the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered the head position of the woman, Virgo, about August 13th and exited from her feet about October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothed or adorns the woman. This surely indicates the position of the sun and the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman, between the neck and the knees. The only time in the year that the sun could be in the position to clothe this celestial woman to be mid-bodied is when it was located about 150 and 170 degrees along the ecliptic. This clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for a 20-day period each year. The 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born in 3 B.C. The sun would have entered the celestial rain region about August 27th and exited it about September 15th. If John in the book of Revelation is associating the birth of Christ with this period when the sun is mid-body to the woman, then Christ would have had to be born within the 20-day period from that point of view of the Magi, who were astronomers, this would have been the only logical sign under which the Jewish Messiah might be born, especially if he to be born of a virgin. Now, even today, astronomers recognize that the sign of Virgo is one which has reference to a messianic world ruler that's to be born of a virgin. Now, the key to narrowing down the date is the moon. The apostle said it was located under her feet. That's what Revelation says. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. Now, since the feet of Virgo, the Virgin, represent the last seven degrees of the constellation, in the time of Christ, this would have been between about 180 and 187 degrees along the ecliptic. Now, the moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven-degree arch, but the moon also has to be in the exact location when the sun is mid-body to Virgo. This, in the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours as observed from Palestine on September 11th. Only time these things happened, and it literally was like an 80-minute window when these two signs came about. So this is the only day in the whole year that this could have taken place. Now, I'm not an astronomer, but if Martin is right, it seems quite clear that Christ was born on September 11th. Isn't that interesting? That should be easy for you to remember, 9-11, Okay. September 11th of 3 B.C. All right, that's the date of the birth of Christ. Now, they say, you know, people come up with other dates, but they're using the Gospels, and they don't consider Revelation. When you take Revelation into account, it gives us very specifically the signs. And Like I said, these guys said, this hasn't happened for hundreds of years, and this thing lines up only here for an 80-minute window. So this tells us clearly when the birth of Christ was, in the stars. And you say, what about December 25th? I mean, what's important about that day? You know, how did that get to be important anyway? Well, a lot of people say, well, it just has to do with Constantine, and he just declared that to be, you know, took the Feast of Saturnalia and made it, you know, be Christ's birthday. And and I think there's some truth to that. Constantine messed a lot of things up. But Martin states this. He says, Jupiter, recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as the planet of the Messiah, was located in Virgo's womb and standing still directly over Bethlehem on December 25th 2 BC, when the child was a little over a year old. Matthew states that the Holy Family was in their house. He says in Matthew 2, 10 through 11 here, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground, and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this date... According to astronomers, and what's neat now is if you get these programs, astronomy programs computerized, you can go back to any date and look at the stars and see exactly what the stars look like at that date. And they're saying December 25th was the date that they saw that star. It was the date when the wise men, the magi, came and fell before the Christ to worship him. That's kind of interesting because that makes, for me, something significant about December 25th, finally. Finally. Something about that date that's important, you know? It's, it's about, now listen, you got to understand, it's about giving Christ presents, okay? Not about giving yourself presents, or your kids presents, or something. You know, if it was your birthday, and everybody else got presents, that would be that crazy, wouldn't it? Hey, it's my birthday, why is everybody else getting presents? Oh, I see, okay. We'll spiritualize that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's really cool that, you know, here's December 25th. The the astronomers are saying, you know, this is the day that these men fell down before the Christ and worshiped him. And I think that is that is cool. That gives some significance to that day. But you know what? Yeah. You know what? It really doesn't matter when Yeshua was born. It doesn't matter that we celebrate his birth. We're never commanded to celebrate or talked about, you know, the Puritans, you know, made it outlaw to celebrate Christmas Day. Well, they didn't understand what we know about the stars, though. All right. What matters is that we understand why he was born. That's what's important. You know, the birth of Christ is a miraculous event of great significance to mankind. In the incarnation, the greatest miracle, the most fantastic truth recorded in the pages of Scripture, God became a man. And he was born to die. He came to die. He came to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin and to pay our sin debt. He died to give us his righteousness and to bear our sins. And all he asks in return is that we trust in him. So when he was born, how we worship, how we celebrate, that's not really a big deal. It's it's, we understand why he was born. And then we realized the whole reason for His coming was to die. He was born to die. He was born to die for us to pay our sin debt. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, it just seems fascinating to me that there's a story to be told in the stars. Lord, I pray You'd give us understanding. I pray You'd give us, Lord, the hearts of Bereans, that we would look at this, we'd ponder it, we'd think about it. We'd look at it in light of Scripture, Lord, and see if these things are true. I thank you, Lord, for the day and age in which we live and the things we can understand. And that we today can go back and look at the sky on 3 B.C. We can look at the sky on September 11th and see the actual fulfillment of Revelation 12, Lord. It's incredible. We can see that in the second year, second B.C., these magi fell down before the infant Christ to worship him. Lord, thank you for the day and age we live. Thank you for all we are learning, Lord. I pray that it would motivate us, and would encourage us, Lord, to love you and to serve you. Amen. Amen.